Hi, my name is Pastor Tony Garbarino of Providence Presbyterian Church. We're delighted that you tuned in to hear a message from God's Word. If you'd like to find more information about us, please go to providencefw.org, providencefw.org. We seek to be Bible-based, gospel-saturated, and Christ-centered. So please enjoy now this message. Thanks for coming. Once again, or take your, the copy that's in your hand already and turn to 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> Continue in 2 Corinthians this morning. We'll be finishing up chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 14 through actually chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> but let's ask the Lord's blessing upon ministry of the word now before we uh, do so. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we come again before you. Lord, we submit ourselves to you. Father, we thank you and praise you for this, your word, that it is perfect and complete. Father, that you have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us all that we would need to know for life and godliness. And we ask, dear Father, that you would help us now to believe it, to base our lives upon it, and Lord God, to find comfort as we hear it. Lord, change us by this, your word, and the working of your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray, and we all, as your people, say together, Amen. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 14. Please give your full attention. This is the word of God. <clears throat> Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. May he add his blessing upon the preaching of the word now. <clears throat> well, when I was younger, there was a, a phrase for, the, for kids who would come home and there was no parents there. Uh, you may remember this term if you're old enough. I don't know if they still use it or not, but it was called a latchkey kid. Right? If you were a latchkey kid, you came home alone because you had a key, something to do with the latch. I'm not sure, but uh, that's what we did. <clears throat> and as a, um, as a young boy, um, alone in the house, we would get in all sorts of mischief. Right? And I can remember as a young boy craving something sweet perpetually um, as a child. And I would rummage through the cupboard and I would find these, um, looked like candies to me, these little cubes wrapped in foil. And he unwrapped it, and I put it in my mouth. And some of you are laughing because uh, it was a beef bouillon, bouillon cube. Uh, not sweet at all. Um, <clears throat> but there was another thing that I would do. <clears throat> I remember once uh, I was rummaging through the cupboard, and I thought I found, uh, hit a gold mine, and it was chocolate milk powder. Right? And so I put the milk in, I put the powder in, and I stirred and stirred and stirred until my arm almost fell off. And I realized it wasn't chocolate milk powder. It was baking cocoa, which will never dissolve uh, into milk. And there was, that always stuck out of my mind. And we think of things like, that don't mix, like oil and water. Or I think overseas they say chalk and cheese. 
right? These things that just don't go together. Oil and water, right? It's this universal picture of things that don't mix, things that are unmixable. Well, in our text this morning, Paul speaks about that which is unmixable. And he tells us, in three lines of reasoning, he says that we should protect and pursue our purity. Why? Because of God's command, because of his covenant, and because of his cleansing. Right? We are to protect our purity and pursue our purity because of his command, because of his covenant, and because of his cleansing. First, God's command. Right? We see in these verses, verses 14 to 16, Paul gives this general principle, and it has a broad range of meaning, broad-ranging implications. And again, he says, notice these five uh, uh, words that he uses. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Right? You see those words, partnership, fellowship, accord, portion, agreement. And Paul here is speaking of Corinthians of Christians being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, right? And this is a command here. It's not a suggestion. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And this image, right, of the yoke is of two different kinds of animals, right, being placed together under the same yoke. And the point is, it's not going to work out. It will not work. The animals will not work together efficiently, the best case scenario is that they will plow in a circle because the stronger will overtake the weaker. The background of Paul's comments here was found in a couple of Old Testament passages. Uh, the first one is Leviticus, um, from a section in Leviticus known as the Holiness Code, uh, Leviticus chapter 17 to 26, um, the Holiness Code. And we have this quote or this principle that he draws from uh, Leviticus 19, verse 19 which says, you shall keep my statutes, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seeds, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made with two kinds of material. Right? And so that's the first place he draws from. And the second one is from Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, which says uh, very clearly, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Right? You shall not plow with these two together. There's a theological reason behind this as well, and a practical reason. Right? The verses seem odd to us, who aren't in that kind of a culture, who aren't in, uh, working on farms with beasts of burden. Um, they seem odd to us, but they come from the requirement that Israel be distinct from her pagan neighbors. Right? This is the theological point. They're to be distinct from their pagan neighbors, to not be like them, to be set apart, to be holy from them, and that Israel be obedient to Yahweh in these symbolic acts, right? All these things that we see, all these things which demonstrate the nation's holiness, their set-apartness unto Yahweh, right? So this distinction, the set-apartness, and the obedience for these reasons. And there were practical advantages as well, as well to obeying these laws. Again, think about it. You have two different kinds of animals. They do not plow effectively together. As I said, the stronger will overtake, actually weaken the smaller animal. The stronger one can actually hurt and do damage to the smaller animal. Like when a weaker animal is in the way of the stronger animal. Or think of mixed crops, right, together, sown together. 
Crops need different kinds, uh, different amounts of water, different kinds of care. They ripen, they grow, they come to maturity at different times, and so on. And there's a theological point as well, though, and that's that God's people cannot be allied with, they cannot be combined with, aligned with pagans in matters related to the kingdom of God. They cannot be, they must not be. Because at the most fundamental level of our lives, our worldview, our world and life view, our system of thinking, right? Christians and non-Christians on that most fundamental level are completely different. They have completely different values and perspectives on everything. And I can't stress this more strongly, brothers and sisters. It's of utmost importance that we understand this and that we believe it and that we are committed to it. Believers in Jesus Christ, right? Christian people, people of God, whole Bible, gospel-renewed believers have a distinct worldview that is in direct and complete odds at every and everywhere in a, in, with all unbelieving worldviews. Right? God will have no competitors. He will not share his people or their thinking or their minds or their hearts with the pagan world, with those who hate the Lord. And at every turn and without ceasing, the world challenges the Christian biblical worldview. Right? We are always in danger of allowing God-hating, Christ-hating worldviews to influence us and to creep into our minds and hearts. We must be aware of this. We must be on guard against this. We must war against this influence on our minds and our hearts. Because for sure, the world is at war against our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's at war against your way of thinking and believing and acting. We've not been called, dear Christian, to passivity or to carelessness, right? We cannot and we must not sit by and just allow the world and its way of thinking to wash over us. Uh, the world's way of thinking which hates Jesus and challenges God's word at every turn. We cannot just sit in it or even entertain these anti-Christian, anti-biblical worldviews or ways of thinking. We cannot and we must not flirt with them or think that we can play around with the ways of thinking and the whole system of thought and belief or take on any of them. We must be aware of these things for our protection, for our good, for God's glory. It's because unbiblical, uh, certainly anti-biblical ways of thinking and structures of thinking, ways of seeing the world are an attack on God and Jesus and are corrosive and destructive to our faith. They have a de degrading influence on us. And so to the extent that we have done this, that we've allowed this into our minds, um, or if we're playing around with these anti-Christian systems of thought, we must repent, right? We must repent. We must cease doing so immediately. Again, for God's glory, for our good, for our protection. God is not to be trifled with. He's not to be toyed with. Right? We have to always ask ourselves anew and again and afresh and, and see all of our life and all of the world uh, uh, in light of these things. Do you love the Lord? Right? Is He the most precious thing to you? Is He altogether precious, indeed the most dear thing to you? You must stop imbibing. Right? Stop taking in things that hate Him. And stop allowing His enemies to shape our thinking. Right? We wouldn't go to the park and pick up a piece of food off the ground and put it in our mouth. Why would we allow things into our mind that have much more destructive effects on us? He loves you as his child. He loves you. He's washed you clean. 
Don't run back and live in the things and places which seek to do him harm and seek to corrupt and befoul you. Right? We must be on guard against these things always. And we must always flee to Christ and cling to him for peace, for wisdom, for life. And again, for our good and for his glory. Right? This is something what Paul's getting at. He's arguing strongly against. An alliance between Christians and non-Christians violates this principle that we see from the beginning of Scripture all the way through, the set-apartness. That's part of what holiness means, set-apart. So believers cannot be wed and bound and yoked in symphony with unbelievers. It cannot work. And then contrast this with the civil realm. Right? That's the, in, in, in the realm of the kingdom, uh, you know, kingdom of God type things. But think about the civil realm as well, right? Things are much different in that regard, right? In that realm, we are all citizens of this place, right? We are uh, foreigners. We are dual citizens, but we are citizens here. We must work together to promote common welfare, right, and peace of our society. And this is one of the points that Paul makes in Romans 13. I encourage you to read Romans 13 later to fill up your Lord's Day as one of your uh, texts that you read and meditate upon. Um, it's one of the points he makes there. But in Christ's kingdom, Paul says there can be no partnership with those apart from Christ. No koinonia, no fellowship between the two. There's nothing in that regard in common between Christians and non-Christians. Right? To be sure, we have a point of contact, and that point of contact is uh, they, like we, are God-created people in a God-created universe, everywhere being confronted with the reality of God. Indeed, the very air that we breathe. But at the worldview level, right, the system of thinking, we are at complete odds with the unbelieving thought. Complete odds. And this is clear from the contrast we've seen Paul uh, discuss thus far in the Corinthian letters, right? Even in 2 Corinthians alone. He's making this distinction, this, this contrast between the law and the spirit, right? The old covenant and the new covenant. Between sight and faith. Between veiled hearts and mind, minds versus Christ lifting the veil, giving eyes to see and giving life. But there's a broader application here as well. Again, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that non-Christians, they think and they act differently than believers. Not because of intelligence or education, but because of presuppositions, because of things, the most fundamental beliefs and their perspective on life are different and at, are at odds. Right? Christians and non-Christians have different values, different goals, different views on who are we, where we come from, what's the problem, what's the solution, where we're going. All those things are diametrically opposed to a biblical worldview compared to what a, a non-Christian would tell you, the answer to those questions. Right? Non-Christians, that's on a general level, but for sure, right, we understand non-Christians do not worship the triune God. They do not see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. They have not been reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. They remain blind to the things of God. They have veiled minds and hearts. And therefore, Paul is exhorting, uh, part of his exhortation includes things like marriage and close-knit relationships, partnerships, what he's talking about, this not being yoked together. Things that go beyond the normal course of daily interaction with believers and unbelievers in the civil realm. Right? Things like working with non-Christians or living next door to them. 
the yoke, right, the bond, will not fit properly, Paul says, and it ought not to be done. Right? And we think back again to Deuteronomy, right, this discussion of animals or work that's done. Right? It, it's damaged when there's un, an unequal yoked, then they're unequally yoked. And this applies, Paul takes this and applies it to believers and unbelievers. Right? But its most significant element is the spiritual eternal realm and the damage that's done in that regard. Right? The Old Testament, there's no mixing right, between believers and pagans, the pagan neighbors. We see this, of course, you remember back to your Old Testament history, when they take the land, right? They go into the land there to purge the land and then enter it and then stay pure, not defile themselves. Again, why is this? Right? It's for their protection. Right? It's to protect them from certain corruption that will happen and will follow and did follow because they didn't do it. And as I mentioned before, the point was to protect them from corruption and the corrupting influence of unbelief, of pagan thought. Right? They're not to intermarry. They're not to yoke themselves or be corrupted or influenced by unbelieving, not people of God. Um, earlier I mentioned Leviticus, right? This holiness code section. Right? Why is that there? This is quite detailed if you've ever, uh, you know, you've got your, you start off in January reading your Bible and you get through Genesis and Exodus and you hit Leviticus and sometimes it's, you know, like the trying to drive with four flat tires. It can be difficult at times. Unless we're paying close attention, unless we're really... Um, Put effort into it. Why is all that there? It points forward to something else. It's very serious business that's going on there. And everything that's being pointed out and being prepared, right, it reached its height in the Old Testament in the temple. Right? All those things that were laid out, they come to fruition. The pinnacle of that is the Old Testament. This absolute uncompromising requirement of purity and the ability to go to the temple, to go to worship in the house of the Lord. This uncompromising requirement for separateness, for set-apartness. But in the New Testament, called to be holy as well, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Or later on, chapter 5, verse 7, therefore do not become partake, partners with them. Right? Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Right? There's this separation, right? This command and demand on our lives to not be like the unbelievers. We are different. We are to be who we are. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Right? Holiness. And so think of the Jerusalem temple back in the Old Testament. This is a picture of the, 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 the supreme extent of this. Right? Everything that was erected, all the system to keep unclean people out, those who were not uh, ceremonial, uh, ceremonially able to come because of their uncleanness. And we see this even in the New Testament times. Um, they've uncovered these, the Gentile uh, court separated by the inner court, right? Um, by a four and a half foot wall. And they found an inscription on this wall that said this. This is the extent that they took this, uh, the seriousness of this. On this wall that separated the Gentile from the inner core, the, uh, the inner core of the Jews, it said, whoever is arrested, right, for violating, passing that wall, whoever is arrested will be responsible for his death, which will follow. Right? Very serious. Very serious. 
And so why should we protect and pursue our purity? Because of God's command. He commands upon us. His command upon us. Why does God command our purity and holiness? Because of his character. Because of his character, right? 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy because I am holy. Leviticus 19 again, I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. So God commands it because of his character and also because of his care and his protection for his people. And failure of this, right? We see the failing of this throughout the pattern of demise in the Old Testament, the people of God, right? We know it well, this sad, sad, uh, repeated pattern that we see and we think, I would never do that. I would never be so doltish. But we would. We would, and we are, and we do. And we see this pattern. The people would intermarry with people outside of the family of God, outside of the people of God. And they would take with it the corrupting influence of their false gods. They would begin worshiping false gods. And you see this again and again. Adultery, right? Adultery. It's referred to as idolatry because they're cheating on the Lord. They're cheating on the Lord who bought them, who saved them, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're cheating on the Lord. It's adultery. And it always ends in ruin for the family, for the king, for the nation. You see this depressing cycle repeated of the people of God in the Old Testament. Right? They're contaminated. They're ruined due to their failure to be holy or taking it cavalierly. We see with the cycle of the judges, the same thing happens, right? We see in King Solomon even, in the kings that come after him. Paul says, do not be inappropriately bound or yoked with unbelievers. Again, that section, verses 14 to 16, right? See this contrast, this common sense, polar opposites that he's laying out there. He talks about there's no fellowship, partnership, harmony, portion, agreement, right? In verse 15 there, you see there's what accord? The word accord there is symphony. What symphony, what togetherness is there between these things? What fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness or light with dark or God with Satan or God's temple with idols? This is God's claim on our lives as his people. And it's absolute. There are no degrees of this. There's no compromise. There's no exception. Right? A partial Christ will not save you. A partial Christ will save no one. Christ will have no competitors. You see the seriousness of this? Be holy, he says, because of his command and for our protection. And anything that's tempting us to compromise this holiness, anything, of, be it the world, the flesh, or the devil, needs to be aggressively fought and battled against and eradicated from our lives. Even seemingly neutral things, right? If they vie for attention and devotion, they've got to go. How much more to things that are contrary to Christ, contrary to Scripture? The Corinthians were faced with this, you know, either the false teachers or the gospel, right? That was their choice. There is no middle ground between the truth and a lie. Christians need to separate themselves from false religion, from pagan religions. There is no fellowship, no symphony between Christ and Satan. There cannot be. There is not. The unbelieving world would not 
It's not denying. It's not neutral. Right? There is no neutrality. Beliefs, persons, are either in service to Christ or they're not. There is no middle ground. Believers are united to Jesus. Right? Non-believers are the family of the enemy in that they remain in that and they do not come to Christ. So we place ourselves in danger when binding ourselves to non-Christians or to anti-Christians. Right? And the result is so sadly ruined and ravaged peace, ravaged and ruined devotion in our lives when this happens. We've all seen this. Because Christ is not their most precious possession. He is, he is not their most precious, most tender thing for them. They're at radical enmity and hatred with Christ. Again, most of us have seen the terrible and miserable existence of some because they have thought that, that it was okay to do so. They thought little of this command of the Lord throughout all of Scripture, particularly Paul here. Do not be unequally yoked. That it was okay to pursue and unite with a non-believer. Dear Christian, the Spirit tells us these things for what? For our protection, right? Because He loves us. He loves us. Why would we tempt the Lord in his shoe and trifle with the Lord? Why flirt with danger? Right? What harmony is there between believer and the non-believer, between light and darkness? Well, Paul addresses the situations where this may be a reality. Right? He talks about this. Sometimes this can come about. Right? What about when one spouse comes to the Lord and the other is not? That's the situation that they're in. And that's different. Right? The Christian is not called to break off that marriage, not at all. And he talks about this elsewhere, but here he's not talking about this. He's talking about something different. Here he's talking about willfully, knowingly, deliberately, purposefully binding yourself, uh, yoking yourself to an unbeliever. Paul is not saying to withdraw from the world, but not to be yoked or bound to an unbeliever. Not put, it, not put yourself in a place where the, the non-believer will have influence over or have direct outcome or influence of our moral decisions and our spiritual activities. We cannot be yoked together with a non-Christian. So important. God has commanded what? That we be holy. We be pure. We be set apart. Set apart solely for Him. And so we're to protect and pursue our, our purity because of his command, but also uh, we're to do so because of his covenant. Right? And in the next set of verses, verses 16 to 18, we have these quotations from the Old Testament. Right? These three quotations taken from different places in the Old Testament. Um, Paul brings together redemptive history to support what he's saying. And the first one he quotes is from Leviticus again, uh, chapter 26. Um, and th this is in regard to Israel's obedience to the covenant. Um, their obedience was to result in their blessing, right? Their blessing. And the greatest blessing was God himself dwelling with his people, right? His presence with his people. Right? That's the pinnacle of that blessing. And the pinnacle of this was pictured in the Old Testament, again, in the temple, right? God dwelling, filling the temple with his presence, right? And then the second uh, quotation he draws from is from Isaiah 52, and this is in regard to the second exodus, Right? It's, it's, it's called to get out of Babylon. Do not be defiled. Right? God would lead them out. He would protect them as they went. He would be their rear guard. 
And then the third quotation is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, and this is the, the, the Davidic covenant, remember. It's this promise by God to David of a successor, right, that would be on the throne forever. Ultimately, this, this is Jesus Christ who would sit on the throne, uh, David's greater son, right? Um, and so Paul takes this, takes these, and he applies it to the church, right? He applies this to the church. It isn't that a beautiful thing as we think about it. Glorious. It's the church, right? They are sons and daughters of the king. They are God's sons and daughters, right? I will be a father to you, verse 18, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What a beautiful thing. You know, some of us don't have, didn't have very good parents in life. Some of us had, uh, some of you may have had fathers who were abusive to you, or absentee fathers. But if you belong to Jesus, if you're united to him, you have a father you never need to flinch from or be fearful towards or to flee from. He is a tender father who loves you. He loves you, his children. And the point of all this is what? It's this, that all, that, all these promises that he's bringing together and drawing upon, all, this pro, all, all that is promised to Israel and to David, they're all pointing ahead. They're all driving history. And that great promise and that great blessing, that great promise of blessing, God's presence with his people, though they fail, though we fail, his promise is that he would lead them back from exile and he would protect them and purify them. He promised that he maintain that Davidic line, keeping his covenant, keeping his promise. And all of these promises he keeps and he fulfills for his people. Jesus Christ kept, kept covenant perfectly. He fulfills all the promises. He leads and he accomplishes the second exodus. He is David's greater son, and we in him are the true Israel. We are the people of God, the called and redeemed of the Lord. God's greater blessing, his greatest blessing, dwelling with them, came to us in its fullest true expression in Jesus Christ. Right? You know this, right? John 1. John 1.14, right? Don't miss this. He made his dwelling among us. The word is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Christ's spirit dwelling, indwelling believers now, glorious, unfathomable. In that verse from, from Peter that we read earlier, the Spirit's indwelling now to the extent that the Apostle Peter can say, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on. You see it? It's glorious. He says, you are the apex of the temple. Right? It is the church of God, the temple. And then that glorious passage, right, in Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
There it is. God dwelling with his people. They are his people, and he is their God. And Paul is saying, do you see, Corinthians? Do you see? And we have to ask, do do we see this? (laughs) Do we we grasp even, even a millimeter of the glory of this? We are being built into the temple of God. Right? God kept his covenant promises. He brought about his covenant promises. And so we should protect and pursue our purity. We should love to live the lives that he loves and designed for us and calls us to. So because of his command, because of his covenants, we are to do so, and also because of his cleansing. Right? His cleansing. Right? This is the third and final thing we're going to look at. God cleansed and accomplished our purity. He cleansed us. Right? You've been washed. Right? We see this throughout this, this uh, passage. In verse 14 it's, 14, it's assumed, you, believer, don't be bound. Verse 16, we are the temple of the living God. And then verse 7, 1, since we have these promises, right? we have these promises. It doesn't say you will have these promises if you obey. It doesn't say that. No, he says we have them. We have them. And this is a reality that God is declaring through Paul to you, brothers and sisters, to all of us who name the name of Christ or are united to him. You see what God has made you to be? You see what God has done for you? You see the promises given to you in Jesus Christ, right? He tells us what we were and then who we are, right? What were we? Well, Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sins, sons of disobedience, sons of disobedience, without hope, helpless in the world, helpless and hopeless, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Or remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this most glorious passage. Uh, it's so striking, the contrast here. Listen to the magnitude of what he's saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a hard word. But he says in verse 11, after cataloging these things, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How glorious is that? And such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and justified. There's hope. (laughs) There's hope. He's telling us who we are. From hopeless and helpless, without hope in the world, without God in the world, to healed, to being the, the, the very holy house of God's dwelling, right? You are now the temple of the living God. God in Christ has accomplished your purity. He's accomplished your cleansing. We are possessors of all the promises and pointers, all the historical preparation, 
Right? There's a predictive word throughout the Old Testament, and then the word of God, Jesus, and then the explanatory word. That's the structure of our Bibles. Right? God has accomplished our purity. We are possessors of all those promises and pointers. All the teaching of the Old Testament that we're pointed to. And they're all instructing us about the character of God and pointing us to Jesus Christ. God's dwelling is with you. It's with you, brothers and sisters. How can we yoke ourselves to Satan, knowing these things? How can we yoke ourselves and bind ourselves to darkness, to lawlessness, to, uh, to unbelievers, to anti-Christian, anti-biblical thought, worldview? God has purified you if you belong to Christ. He's given you an address in the holy city. Right? That's where your true home is. You pursue and protect your impurity out of gratitude, out of love for him, out of trust for him. And that's how Paul ends, right, in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We must always be on the lookout. We must be ever diligent, ever aware our culture is full of obstacles and challenges. It's full of dangers and compromises and opportunities to defile us. And they come at us rapid fire like a machine gun, like a tidal wave. And so we must be deliberate in our lives. We must not think lightly of these things. We must not think little of these things. We must be deliberate. We must be purposeful. We must be aware of danger and the dangers that are cast upon us. Right? That's one danger. But secondly, how could we? Right? What insanity, knowing these things that Paul has just told us, what insanity to be pursuing binding ourselves to the enemy right? or to those who despise and hate our Lord, to someone who is hostile to the Lord Jesus. Again, this command is not because God uh, wants to keep you from something fun or good. Right? That's another portrayal of the world, another lying portrayal of the world. God's a killjoy. No, it's for your protection because he loves you and he wants you to have full joy, true joy and blessedness. It's for our protection. Just like a good parent who keeps their child from sticking their finger in a like socket or just eating junk all the time. They don't keep them from doing that because they want to hurt them or because they're a joy kill. It's because they love them. Not to be a joy kill. It's because God loves you his, as his child. And his desire is to protect you and to save your life. Jesus calls you to protect your purity. It is not for you a burden. It's not to burden you. And you know this, right? Speaking of the yoke, right? How does Jesus describe his yoke? Right? You know the passage. Matthew 11. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. His yoke provides rest. And he says what? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy. It is light. Indeed, it is your life. It's our lives. He allows for no contrary yoking. Right? 
we engage the world, and we do so always remembering who we are. Right? Do we think carefully and consider as we do so what we allow into our eyes and our hearts and our minds? Are we zealous to protect the name of Christ and to protect the purity that he made pure? Right? The temple that he made pure, of which we are. And are we careful when no one's watching to the same extent? The decisions that we make and the things that we do, we're either preserving the purity of the temple or we're desecrating the temple by our conduct. May we consider these things in light of the love of our God. Right? Paul's stern warning that comes here, it grows out of the fact that all of God's covenant promises are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The new covenant is ratified in his shed blood. And because we have been purchased by Christ and reconciled by God through the cross, the great covenant promise stands. I will be your God and you will be my people. And he is and you are. God is in our midst, right? Remember Zechariah. Be the glory in our midst and the wall of fire around us. His people. It's glorious. God is in our midst because we are his temple. His spirit lives within us, guaranteeing that all of Christ's saving benefits are ours. They're ours. He tells us in his word. He shows us in the supper. And because we are God's dwelling, he walks among us. And his glorious covenant promise stands forever. I am your God, and you are my people. Dear Christian, pursue who you are. Pursue that purity, cleansing from all defilement, completing holiness and the fear of the Lord, as he says. You take these truths and this encouragement back with you, back into the world, back into this week. Remember and give praise and glory to the God who promised, fulfilled, and cleansed you for his good, for your good, and for his glory. Go forth, dear Christian, and live for Jesus in all that you do, in every way, now and for always. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this, your word. Father, we thank you that you promised to give us strength, Lord, and that you tell us to be uh, strong in your might, Father. And so we pray, we come to you with a posture of surrender and humility, trusting what you tell us, that we are indeed dead to sin, and that we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Lord, help us to walk in newness of life. Help us to take these things seriously. Lord, help us to be ever more aware of our union with Jesus, our Savior, and our King. May it indeed impact all that we do for all of our lives. We ask all these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in this morning. Uh, if you'd like more information uh, about Providence, if you're in the greater Fort Wayne area and would like to visit us, please go to our website, providencefortwayne.org. If you'd like to give, if you were blessed by this message, if you'd like to have more information about the faith or about growing in your faith, uh, we'd love for you to get connected with us. Thank you. We've set up a simple way for you to give to our church online. If you want to give a quick gift, enter an amount, select a fund, 
then enter your email address and your first and last name. Then enter your payment details and click Give. And that's it! We'll send a receipt to your email address. To use a saved payment method or manage a recurring donation, you'll want to log in. Click the Login button and we'll send a code to your phone or email account. Verify the code and you're in! Now your payment info is ready to go when you want to make a donation. To manage your giving details, switch over to the My Giving page. Here you'll see more ways you can give. You can also add a payment method, like a bank account or a debit card, set up a recurring donation, and view your giving history. To get started, visit our website or download the Church Center app in your Android or Apple App Store.